One of the most remarkable things that we find when we look out at the universe is that many of the galaxies out there aren't like our Milky Way. Sure, they still have stars, billions of them, and they still have massive black holes at their centers. But unlike our Milky Way, which is a relatively quiet black hole, many of these galaxies are going through enormous episodes of star formation, where giant bursts of new stars are getting actively created at this time. What's also happening in many of those star-forming galaxies is their central black hole are acting like these massive engines, funneling in gas, accelerating it, and emitting this incredible spectrum of radiation. These galaxies that are doing this have what we call active galactic nuclei, and there's a tremendous connection between these galaxies, star formation, black holes, and their histories. What is that connection, and what are we learning about the universe by studying them? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. It isn't necessarily obvious why a galaxy that's actively forming stars would be so much more likely than a quiet galaxy to have its black hole also be activated, to have its central supermassive engine, this incredible source of gravitation, also producing radiation of all these different varieties, from x-rays and even gamma rays all the way down to radio waves. But to help us untangle what's going on here and what the connection is between active galactic nuclei and the star formation that occurs in these galaxies, I'm so pleased to welcome PhD candidate Alyssa Sokol from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Alyssa is an expert in active galactic nuclei, both from an observational perspective and from their connection to star formation. Alyssa, it's my pleasure to welcome you here, and thanks for being on the Starts With a Bang podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's get right into this, right? If I were to say, look at a diff distant galaxy, and I were to only look at it in visible light, if I were to only mm -hmm. look at it with the same types of light that our eyes could see, is there anything that I could look for to know is its central black hole going to be active or not? Or is it more likely to be active or not if certain conditions are met? What, what would you say is a signature to look for that might tell you, is this a good candidate for being a galaxy that, for lack of a better term, has its black hole switch turned to on? Right, so, so that's a great question. And part of the thing um, that makes studying these active black holes a little bit mysterious is that they do emit at such a variety of wavelengths. But one of the wavelengths that they do emit at is the optical. So your active black holes um, that are what we refer to as unobscured, which means that they don't have a bunch of dust kind of surrounding them. And I can elaborate that, elaborate on that in a little bit. Um, but we refer to these uh, really bright sources as quasars, usually, the active galactic nuclei that are um, very bright at optical wavelengths. And those tend to be 
found much further out in the universe um, around Redshift 6, which would kind of correspond to about about uh, one billion years after the Big Bang. Um, but yeah, interestingly, you know, kind of nearby, there are these um, images of these galaxies known as Seifert galaxies, where um, so these are galaxies that you can kind of resolve the structure. They do have some spiral activity, but you can actually see that the central nuclear part is much brighter. So, you know, as you get, as you start to study ga galaxies that are further and further away, of course, the resolved structure just becomes a blob, a single dot. So that's where things get a little dicey. Um, but there is a population of active galaxies that have their central region emitting at, at uh, very bright optical wavelengths. And for the ones nearby, sometimes you can, um, sometimes you can identify that because their bright, their central nuclear region is so bright. Um, but for ones further away that are um, not resolved, that are just a peaked point of emission, that's where you kind of have to look at its um, emission at, at different wavelengths to really get um, kind of the full picture. And that's, that's, I think, very instructive because we know when we look in the optical, right, there's a good reason for it. It's what our eyes could see. It's There are historical reasons for it. There's also right. like, geez, it's just easier to build a telescope <laughs> that works with the light that we're most familiar with using. And also, our atmosphere happens to be pretty transparent to optical light, and it isn't necessarily transparent in all the other wavelengths we can look at. But if we want to really know what's going on, right, you mentioned a whole bunch of different objects. You mentioned quasars. You mentioned active galactic nuclei. You mentioned Seifert galaxies. There are mm -hmm. others, too. There are BL Lacertae objects. There are all sorts of other galaxies that initially we classified into these different categories because they had different properties. But today we look back on these different types of galaxies and we say, you know what, they're all doing the same thing. Every one of these galaxies has a supermassive black hole at its center that we believe is feeding on matter, is feeding on, you know, these either inflows or torn up stars or gas or whatever it is, and they're accelerating it and they're emitting radiation. And that radiation, like you said, you can see it in the optical if you're lucky enough to not have too much dust there. But as mm -hmm. we know from dust, dust absorbs radiation at higher energies and it emits radiation at lower energies and temperatures in general. So mm -hmm. if you wanted to say, okay, I'm going to find these AGNs wherever they are, what is it that you would look at to say, I'm going to find them and I'm going to find them regardless of how much dust they have? Is there a way you can go and do that? Um, yes. So part of the uh, enigma of these AGN and kind of how, you know, how the field has developed around them into what is... Uh, commonly accepted now as the, as the AGN unification model is that they do emit at uh, a variety of different wavelengths. So um, I'll, I guess for everyone, I, I'll just go over some of the main, the main other uh, wavelength regimes that they emit at and kind of why all of those together make it a little, um, make it a little strange to to get a full understanding of, of what they are. But so there's the optical emission that I mentioned, which you can see um, sometimes just as, you know, 
it, it's pretty much just coming from this accretion disk. So you have, so what's actually happening in these centers of these galaxies that have, um, that are very active is you have this central black hole, right? And you have this accretion disk of material around it. So it's very hot, uh, mostly gas, some dust, um, and this hot gas um, is infalling into the black hole and it re and it causes it to heat up to very high temperatures um, and causes it to then emit x-ray radiation. So you get from the accretion disk, you get um, all this gas is heated up to really, really high temperatures on the order of about a million Kelvin. Um, and so that hot gas gives you um, x-ray emission, but it also becomes, if, if the dust around it uh, surrounding it in this toroidal uh, kind of donut-like shape, we like to say. So you have this accretion disk, then followed by this toroidal um, dusty um, donut shape, which then uh, will kind of absorb the really bright emission from this disk, and then again re-radiate in the infrared. So I went through a lot of different kinds of emission there. So your optical accretion disk is bright in the optical, then you have this hot gas around it that gets extremely hot, emits an x-ray, then you have a dusty kind of uh, torus around that absorbs some of this heat and then emits at infrared wavelengths. So you really have a whole spectrum. And then on top of that, some uh, population of these sources will have these radio jets of emission kind of blasting out from the center. And so you can also get radio emission from these sources. So essentially, the way that this has kind of developed is we're seeing these different signatures, but it's weird because not every uh, not every source that we see as an AGN, um, not all of them are going to have X-ray emission. So maybe one has X-ray emission and one and it also has optical emission, but it doesn't have any infrared emission. Or one has infrared, but it doesn't have any optical. So how do we, you know, how do we unify this? How do we, how do, how do we know that we're even talking about the same thing, right? So that's where this unification model comes in that kind of brings these all brings all of these types of emission together and it says that what we are observing is going to be dependent on the inclination angle that we're observing this source at. So depending on and possibly uh, its evolutionary phase a little bit, which I can get into. But one of the most important things would be the inclination angle such that if you're looking at it edge on, from this disc and you're looking straight through this dusty torus, you're more likely to see this infrared emission. I think the radio, the, these radio lobe jets, those are the most kind of subject to um, inclination angle biases because they're very, um, they're very specific in the direction that they're, that they're probed at. They're not, um, so there's a few different kinds of emission in, around these spherical disc-like objects, you know, which we refer to as either um, isotropic or um, non-isotropic and just uh, pointed, you know? So these jets will be pointed, meaning that depending on what angle you're viewing them, you may or may not pick up this radio emission. Uh, on the other hand, X-ray emission is a bit more isotropic, meaning that you more likely, you're likely to be able to detect an AGN at these very energetic X-ray um, wavelengths regardless of whether uh, what angle you're looking at it. But 
the dust is um, back to kind of your original question of how you can determine an obsc obscured from unobscured or dusty from undusty. Um, looking at them in the infrared wavelengths tends to, uh, you would be able to detect to detect it regardless of um, if there was kind of just, regardless of, of the inclination angle rather. No, and I think that's really fair, right? If you think about a spiral galaxy, right? Like our view of spiral galaxies, if we sort of think about them in their head, we typically think about them looking at them face on, right? Where you have those sweeping spiral arms that go around it, but you can only see those arms visually if you're oriented with respect to the galaxy so that when you look at it, you can see that spiral shape. If you were to take that face-on galaxy and you were to rotate it 90 degrees so that mm -hmm. it was like edge-on, so that you're looking at a thin you know, edge-on galaxy, it kind of looks more like a, a diffuse needle in that yeah. regard. And so... Exactly. That's that's how orientation can mess with our views of just something that's quiet and common like a plain old galaxy. Now, do something like turn that black hole at the center on. Turn it on so it emits radiation, right? It's got an accretion disk full of matter. Some of that matter flows into it. It accelerates it. What direction is it going to go in? Well, that's going to depend on how the black hole is oriented with respect to the galaxy and with respect to the gas that's being accreted around it. You can say, well, what about the other types of radiation it's going to emit? Well, that's going to depend on the presence and properties and density of the gas that's there. And it's also going to depend on the presence or absence of dust, including how that dust is or isn't along the line of sight. And then you brought up another thing about jets, and I'll post an image of the galaxy Centaurus A along with this uh, podcast so that people can see what these jets that come out of a galaxy look like. That's an example of a galaxy that definitely has some activity going and you can see the jets are coming off at some odd angle. You might expect mm -hmm. that, oh, they have to be coming out perpendicular to the disk of a disk galaxy. But that isn't always the case either. These objects can be complex and varied, and the only way we can sort of, you know, understand them better is by doing some of the work like exactly what you do, which is to take some sort of census of a wide variety of different types of these and see what properties vary among them and what do they all have in common. Yes, exactly. And then another um, another aspect of it that is it's still a little bit of an open question is, um, you know, do all galaxies end up going through this phase where their uh, black hole is just kind of turns on and is accreting a bunch of material all at once? Um, one of the um, so w one of the kind of theories is that they kind of make this analogy to like flicker, flickering lights going on and off. So if you were to be looking at the entire galaxy population, maybe um, the way that AGN um, activity kind of persists is that each galaxy maybe goes through a few different episodes of AGN activity. Or is that, you know, is that even the way uh, it works at all? And if so, what, you know, what causes this their AGN to suddenly... Um, 
to suddenly stop or turn on and you know what other external factors are a part of that and how much does that AGN activity then affect the properties of the rest of the galaxy and there are some kind of fundamental relations that have been observed um, in the nearby universe that have um, that have led astronomers to very much believe that there is some uh, some fundamental um, physics or something that is causing the properties of this central supermassive black hole to affect other properties of that of of that galaxy. Yeah, and, and in general, that's that's what we call feedback, right? Where you have something that that drives some effects, right? You have something like a supermassive black hole there, and that supermassive black hole might do things like it might eat some matter, it might develop an accretion disk somehow. Um, but one, you can ask, okay, is there something? something that happens that causes these black holes to turn on and become active and if so what is that thing or what are those things and then two you can say well when these galaxies do turn on when they're active when their black holes become active um does that activity have a feedback effect? Does it change something else that's happening in the galaxies because these black holes are are active now? And does that even maybe lead to a third question where you have feedback that can lead to that black hole turning off again? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, exactly. What what are the where do we go from there? What are the what are the answers to that? Because we've got three questions. I'll lay them out again. <laughs> One is, does something happen to make these galaxies turn on? Two, does something happen once these galaxies to turn on that the act of them being on leads to other effects in the galaxy? And number three, is there some way that once these galaxies turn on, is there something about them being active and being on that might lead them to turn off again? Right. So, you know, un- unfortunately, a few of these are still kind of open questions, but I, I'll, t- yeah, I can talk about um, kind of some of the fundamental um, ideas that that all roads lead to could possibly. Um, you know, have to do with this. So it has to do with what astronomers sometimes refer to as the galactic fountain, which means, um, you know, galaxies are kind of constantly going through this process. If you could just imagine a galaxy where it, they have this gas, this external gas, like high above the galaxy kind of hanging out, and then it kind of rains down into the galaxy caused by its central gravity and the, and the pull from the, from the black hole, right? So it kind of rains down into the galaxy um, and this cold gas in falling will then help the galaxy kind of supply supply gas and aid for, aid in its star formation and kind of cause the galaxy um, to form stars. But then in the process of stars forming and then exploding, going off in supernovae, you get uh, you still get more um, feedback and everything, and and the galaxy then goes through another cycle of kind of expelling. Um, expelling material back out into its circumgalactic region. And then, um, so that's what I mean by this galactic fountain. It, it's kind of, um, to just paint it generally, there, there is this cycle that, that goes on where the gas kind of comes back out and it comes back in and it rains back in on the galaxy. And so 
So this kind of cold gas supply that I'm talking about that is the quote unquote water, water of the galactic fountain um, is usually identified as what is maybe maybe the reason that there is a connection between the amount of uh, black hole activity that a, ga that a uh, galaxy has, the amount of supermassive black hole activity that it has at its center, and the amount of star formation happening. And the reason being because um, both of these processes, star formation and black hole accretion, they need some source of fuel, right? And that fuel is this gas. And um, so I think that one of the things that could potentially trigger uh, these galaxies to start really um, accreting could be some, you know, in some infl influx, inflow of gas. Um, but then back to the other two questions about how this galaxy or how the central black hole activity um, then either, you know, how, how it then controls the rest of the galaxy. Um, that's where there's two kind of interesting theories that are both completely opposite. Um. Well, let's uh, let's drill into that first point a little bit first, sure. uh, a little bit more if that if you're cool with that, because yeah. uh, one of the things I'm a little curious about is you talked about how this gas needs to be cold. You need cold gas to have star formation. And I would assume this is because hot gas basically has too much kinetic energy. It won't collapse. It won't It won't contract down and let you form a new star. Even though we need these high temperatures to initiate fusion, basically if your gas is too hot and it has too much kinetic energy, it's not gonna be able to lose that, uh, that sort of kinetic uh, force that's in it and be able to collapse down to form new stars. But when it comes to feeding a black hole, right, you're saying this gas needs to be cold in order to feed the black hole successfully. So does that mean you need something like a, a molecular cloud that's in the halo of your galaxy to fall in? Does it mean you need to merge with a different galaxy and sort of devour that material? Does it mean that, you know, you have a other possibilities for how you can feed this black hole and get it to turn on in the first place? And does it mean that once the black hole has been active for long enough that all of that extra energy, all of that star formation that happens, does that mean that it might heat this gas up and cause the black hole to turn off once again? Right. So. Yeah, you bring up an, another another point that I kind of half forgot to mention, which are uh, galaxy mergers. But there, um, yeah. So I, I do think that there are some, especially when you're talking about a single galaxy, um, maybe throughout the course of its lifetime, can have different episodes of black hole activity. Um, that and if that galaxy happened to not interact with another galaxy in the meantime. Um, it's definitely possible that some extra cold gas supply from its surroundings kind of came in. Um, I would say that that these active black holes don't necessarily, you know, need need the cold gas supply um, or need cold gas specifically to kind of uh, to kind of fuel it. But it is it is you know a well known common. Uh, source of of fuel that is that is constantly being rained down on these galaxies but another thing to get back into the uh the, the merger thing that is 
So when I say merger, I refer to, you know, two galaxies um, colliding um, and that kind of heat and the intent, the high energy of that process. Um, and those galaxies before both already had supermassive black holes. And so those two black holes kind of collide. You get this um, pretty much once once they collide, you get this abundance of energy and dust and material all around the center. And it is just the perfect opportunity to, you know, cause another once it kind of settles in or once it's in the process of uh, the angular momentum and everything resettling to kind of form one new monster large galaxy, um, that's definitely where a lot of your black hole accretion um, can happen in those in these merger scenarios. So does that mean if we look ahead to our own Milky Way and we look ahead to our far future where four to seven billion years from now, uh, our galaxy and the other large galaxy in our local group Andromeda will merge together uh, to produce a super galaxy known as Milk Dromeda. Does that mean... <laughs> Is that the name we're going with these days? <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, it's the one I'm using anyway. Uh, I like but... it. <laughs> well, if you don't like it, too bad it's my podcast. But, uh, <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask, uh, does this mean we would have a reasonable expectation that whatever our new galaxy merges into when Andromeda and the Milky Way and whatever else in the local group all merge together, does that mean that would be an excellent time to expect that our central black hole would become active? Um, yeah, I think that it's based on based on what we know uh, and you know the black hole activity that emerges from these merging galaxies, I think um, it's definitely it's definitely possible. The other thing to consider though is um, just the evolutionary properties of the of these galaxies across cosmic time, which is something that we haven't talked about yet, but is part of uh, my research and definitely something that I'm interested in because so you know, you can talk about these galaxies as just isolated, you know, and where um, just wherever they are, at one given time and what and their properties and everything but um a really important study of of black holes black hole accretion and galaxies is their evolution and the fact that we do see trends um of there being episodes in the past where star formation and black hole accretion were much more rampant than they are today and things are slowing down today which is what makes me say answer to your question i mean Yes, uh, it's 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 possible, but there, for some reason, local in the local universe, um, you know, we're seeing less and less of these uh, of these active galaxies. There still are mergers, but when you look at the general trend of how things are evolving since the Big Bang, um, there is there's a decline to the present moment of how of the you know the volume density of these of um, how many how many galaxies are active and such so that's another thing to kind of um, consider you know you're basically saying that you know yeah you know we we would have really expected like sure if there was a big merger between something the size of the milky way and something the size of andromeda uh 10 billion or 11 billion years ago when star yes. formation was at or near its peak mm -hmm. um that certainly would have been an excellent time to say, yeah, we definitely expect a galaxy merging back then would have had a very high likelihood of becoming active, of having its galactic nucleus turn on. Um, exactly. 
But as we go farther into the future, we are not exactly sure why, but yeah, star formation rate has dropped precipitously over the last 11 billion years, yeah. and we are seeing, along with that decline, a decline in the fraction of galaxies that become active. And this mm -hmm. is kind of interesting because this is really that uh, second question I asked you about early yes, on. Exactly. I said, what other effects happen in a galaxy as a result of this central black hole turning on. And I know one of the things you sort of, uh, I won't say specialize in, but that you are extremely interested in is what is the connection between star formation and the star formation rate in a galaxy and whether it has an active galactic nucleus and what the properties of this AGN are. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll go through these two, um, you know, kind of competing and completely oppositional um, theories, which is, it's just a little bit ironic um, of, you know, how AGN can either um, enhance or completely suppress star, forma star formation. So it's, it's almost like it can kind of go one way or the other, but exactly when you kind of piece it together across cosmic time and you see this decline and you see... Um, you see billions of years ago at the peak of this star formation activity you're also seeing the peak of uh, mergers so there was this yeah there was this period of time where galaxies were just merging a lot more frequently um they were forming stars uh, at a lot higher rates and the black holes were creating a lot faster um and and one of the yeah one of the speculations of what could have possibly caused this decline is this AGN activity, and that's really such an open open question to link these different populations of galaxies that we see. And so we see these galaxies that are very active in blue, as we refer to them, uh, because they're very bright with their blue light, which is representative of um, you know indicative of that wavelength of star formation, and. Uh, these red, we refer to as red and dead galaxies that have kind of done done with their star formation. And it's like, where does that transition? What What's responsible for that transition between these two populations? And so one, one theory for AGN, for these active uh, centers uh, suppressing the star formation is that, is that the black hole produces kind of maybe so much feedback, um, so much heat, kind of that, and so much energy that it totally clears out the gas from the galaxy. And that's, and in that case, if you were saying that it kind of removes the gas from the galaxy from from this feedback, in that case, it would be um, suppressing this uh, suppressing the star formation because another part of that is heating up the. Um, is heat is heating up the galaxy, and one thing that is an important thing to know for this whole active galactic nucleus and host galaxy star formation connection is that you do need very cold gas um, to help uh, to create stars, right? So then, oh, sorry, did you want to say something? Okay, so I think what I want to do before you go on to explaining sort of the second scenario is to see if we can explain the first one back correctly. So basically what I'm understanding for this first scenario is that there's a connection between mergers, black holes, 
and star formation. And when I say black holes, I mean the black holes turning on and becoming active. And what happens in this first scenario is, look, you've got all these galaxies, especially early on, that have that, they have dark matter, they have stars in either a disk or an ellipse, ellipsoid, and then they have all of this gas and dust and material that can be used to form new stars. So when they merge together, what happens? Well, you get the gas, it interacts, some of it heats up, but a lot of it stays cool, and this triggers new star formation. And this is something that we don't really argue over. Wherever we see merging galaxies, we see lots of new star formation. So that's definitely something that happens. But it sounds like in the first scenario, what's happening is these mergers and these new stars, they also, right, you have all this material flowing throughout the galaxies that are merging together, and these black holes, these supermassive black holes, they're going to suck in some of this matter. They're going to absorb some of this matter. Some of this matter is going to accrete around them in a disk and sort of flow into them. And when it does, you know, that gas is going to heat up. That gas is going to get a lot of energy to it. It's going to radiate, and we're going to observe it because it's an active galaxy now. But then what you're saying is in this scenario, that heat, that radiation, that that activity right. that's occurring in the central region of the galaxy, that's going to work to, I think the term we use is we say to quench star mm -hmm. formation. It's basically right. going to provide radiation that provides feedback. It's going to heat up that gas that would love to just continue forming stars. And it might mm -hmm. even blow some of that gas clear out of this newly merged galaxy if there's enough energy and small enough masses overall for the galaxy. So it sounds like that's a big theoretical effect that could happen is to basically say, yeah, galaxies merge, you form new stars, it turns on the central black hole, and then that central black hole provides feedback, basically puts the kibosh on star formation and might even remove all of that potential fuel to form even more stars. So right. is that the first scenario? Yes, yes. Um, okay. Yeah. So the main the main idea, um, or the kind of the main takeaway, really being that you need um, you need a lot of gas and you need cold, uh, dense gas to form stars. And the presence of AGN, they're you know the most energetic um, bodies in the universe. Uh, and so when you have a lot of energy, you have a lot of heat. It's really going to work against um, the star formation that is in. The rest of the galaxy that would be able to um, persist business as usual, um, maybe if that AGN was not there. Well, that makes that makes sense, right? You know, something mm -hmm. comes in, right? If the AGN wasn't there, if that central black hole didn't turn on, you wouldn't have all this excess energy getting pumped back. You know, a lot of it get pumped back into the into the galaxy itself, um, and so you can say, okay, I get it. Galaxies merge, stars form, gal AGN turns on, the AGN being on says, all right, no more star formation, have some energy, get out of here. Mm -hmm. All right. What's the second scenario? So the second scenario um, in which pretty, pretty much which we see um, this coincidence of a lot of uh, AGN black hole accretion and a lot of star formation in the same galaxies. Um, some of the main theories, well, we kind of, we did mention it a little bit when we were talking about the first one, 
um, and why these merger systems tend to have a lot of star formation because you need cold, dense gas uh, to form stars. So when you push these two galaxies together, when you have kind of a lot of motion of these external parts of the galaxies, you naturally get a lot more gas uh, pushed, a lot more gas and dust pushed together, creating these over densities and creating the perfect recipe and environment for star formation. And another, um, another aspect, just back to kind of that cold gas supply that I was mentioning before, uh, another reason that we think we can see um, sources have a lot of black hole activity and a lot of star formation, um, despite the whole heat, uh, you know, the, the heat of the AGN maybe working at, against the star formation, is that maybe those galaxies have a very large uh, cold gas reservoir around them that um, because they're both kind of feeding from the same material, if there is a lot of uh, gas, uh, there's, if there's a large gas supply in those galaxies, that could be enough um, to fuel both star formation and both black hole accretion. So that's kind of another scenario where you can have both of them coinciding. But it's true that there is, there's a range of populations out there. You know, you have star forming galaxies that have a strong AGN. You have star forming galaxies that have no AGN. Uh, well, they do have a black hole, but um, when I say no AGN, I mean no, um, you know, activity in there and you have some something in between. There's a whole range um, of these populations out there and that's kind of what I am uh, focused on a bit more in my research. And that's sort of really interesting because what you're saying is, look, the reason that there are these multiple theories that appear to conflict with each other, we're basically in the second scenario that you outlined, you said, okay, look, well, let's say you get gas from a galaxy merger or whatever and the central black hole turns on right now that the central black hole turns on it's sort of like if if i'm at the center and i'm a black hole and i turn on and i'm like roar and i have all this energy and i emit all this energy and i i push things out right it's going to push things out in waves right i i always mm -hmm. get blast waves or pressure waves or something like that uh and it's going to collide with the stuff in the environment, with the stuff around me. And if you or the listeners are like some gas, some cold gas that's, you know, on the outskirts of where the AGN's blast wave gets to, um, well, suddenly when that wave hits you, it's going to cause this gas to compress. And if mm -hmm. you have cold gas that compresses, that's going to help trigger star formation. In fact, that's how we believe star formation actually gets triggered in a wide variety of galaxies and environments. We think that might even happen here in our own Milky Way when you have something like a, a supernova go off that it sort of sends the, this gas into, you know, higher density states around it. Yes. If you have it run into a gas cloud, it could trigger new star formation there. So it's kind of interesting that you have these sort of like, oh, like, here's a scenario where maybe it works this way and we have some evidence for it. And here's a scenario where it works exactly the opposite way right. and we have some evidence for it. And then you put out this third possibility of, you know, and actually it's quite likely that both effects happen and which effect dominates is going to depend on the conditions which mm -hmm. your specific galaxy has. And given that we have somewhere around, you know, two trillion galaxies in the universe, you, you probably have many examples of all of these. And this is kind of where things get really interesting, I think, in your research, because you get to say, okay, um, which scenarios dominate under which conditions. And you get to look at 
evolution and which ones are more likely at which points in time and which ones are happening, but they're below the threshold at which we can currently see the galaxy's activity. And if we get more sensitive, will we turn up more of them? And how does the presence or absence of dust, which you told us we could look for in the infrared, that's the key signature of where you find the dust. um, How does that play a role? Mm -hmm. Right. And so what I'm most interested in is these sources that have both star formation and AGN activity uh, to some extent going on. And and the way that uh, in the literature and in the field of astronomy that uh, AGN are are typically studied um, is that because of our, you know, limitations of um, instruments and everything, we tend to only be able to see the tip of the iceberg AGN, so the, the strongest ones out there, right? So we're studying these very strong AGNs, and the AGN community, um, you know, looks looks at these AGN, looks a little bit at um, at the amount of star formation that's coinciding at, with them, but they tend to kind of just select uh, some population of AGN, maybe based on their X-ray emission, so looking for um, sources that are surefire X-ray sources or sources that are surefire infrared um, AGN sources. But the thing is, there really is there's there's a full spectrum because every every galaxy has a black hole. You can assign, um, you know, if you if you want to say we refer we say like AGN fraction or the fractional contribution of that black hole's um, emission to the whole galaxy's emission at some wavelength, right? Um, you know, almost every galaxy should theoretically have some fractional contribution of their black hole between 0% and 100%. And that's really when you when you try to explore that full range, that sweet spot of a population that has some, um, some full spectrum of AGN strength, that is where you can really get into what's going on and how, um, you know, what this uh, sometimes is thought of a little bit as a transitionary period, you know, this AGN, sorry, that's the word, this AGN phase, uh, once once everyone gets to the end of their paper and kind of puts together this discussion, it, it usually always ends up as some story that the AGN is, is some kind of transitional phase, maybe, from a regular star-forming galaxy to maybe either a spiral galaxy or maybe um, an elliptical galaxy that doesn't have star formation anymore if that specific one ended up turning off its galaxy's star formation. So to kind of understand um, the concurrent black hole accretion and star formation in galaxies, you need to create this sample where you're looking at a whole range of AGN activity. And that's, um, that's kind of what I'm focused on. And so I can talk a little bit about the specific signatures of which um, I look at that with, if you want. I mean, that sounds really interesting because what you're what you're sort of outlining to me is saying like, look, um, we know that these galaxies that have active galactic nuclei in them right now, we know that these galaxies probably had an AGN that was not on at some time in the past and something Mm -hmm. happened to feed it in just the right way that now it's on and we know that this is a transient thing. We know it's not going to stay on and stay active forever. But 
humans have only been doing astronomy for a few hundred years and humans have only been doing the type of astronomy that you have been talking about this multi-wavelength astronomy where we yeah. look at x-rays and ultraviolet and optical and infrared and microwave and radio and we look at a galaxy in all of these wavelengths sometimes simultaneously sometimes at different times and we can see, you know, oh, geez, we've only been looking at this for decades. But when you talk about the time scale on which AGNs change, right, they might do things like have little flares or something like this on the scale of, you know, subhuman lifetime time scales. But in terms of turning on, turning off, things like that, these are estimated to take hundreds of thousands of years or more. So mm -hmm. how how do you study you know, something that what you call is a transitional phase, but that happens on timescales that are so much longer than a human lifetime. Right. So, um, yeah, so w there's a few different, you know, age estimates of how long this AGN period is. Um, you know, one that I can kind of pull out right now is around 100 million years. Um, which is on astronomical timescales, not that long, um, casually. Um, but Right, so that's kind of the, the angle that, that I'm trying to take with my research now is trying to look at AGN that are at a whole range of, of strengths because if there is this episodic um, or maybe stochastic uh, nature, then then you kind then the only way is it, so for a for a single galaxy since you can't um, probe since you can't um, study it at every single phase of its life, but what you can do is try to get a sample of galaxies where the AGN is weak, where the AGN is moderate, where the AGN is strong, and piece them all together within the same sample of galaxies to see kind of um, what that can tell you about about the evolution if you're if you're trying to piece together this whole range. And you know, a lot of people, a lot of people have been um, have been doing that to to try to understand this transition you know so that's where that's where these um these theories and these discussions come from um with agn being some transition transition phase and that that all makes a whole lot of sense i mean 100 million years that's that's an insanely long time to me to talk about as a transitional phase but you yeah, have right. to realize that yeah on an astronomical time scale that's less than one percent of the age of the universe so mm -hmm. when you sort of like you know like oh i'm in a transitional period in my life and it lasts less than a year you don't worry about calling that a transitional period <laughs> and i suppose if you're a galaxy and you've been around for 13 billion years and you're like oh yeah i went through this transitional period you know for about a hundred million years where you know i don't know old triangulum over here came over and just like merged with me <laughs> out of nowhere and i was like yeah i guess i'll turn on for a while like a hundred million years might be about right what what's sort of fascinating to me though is you know as a theorist um I sort of look at like, oh, yeah, it's like easy to come up with, you know, some explanations for what could possibly cause this, what could possibly do this. But the key is figuring out and you need the observational data for this. What occurs when? What are the conditions under which this occurs or that occurs? And so if you wanted to be able to do that right this is kind of this is kind of what i assume you do looking ahead to the future is sort of saying okay 
what equipment and facilities do we have at our disposal today and what types of measurements can we make or will we be able to make that can be done with the technical equipment that we have or will have and that also will help answer some of these burning questions we have about what causes, you know, what is the link basically between star formation in a galaxy and the activity or inactivity of the active galactic nuclei? Right. So, um, right. And so to address that, I'm mainly looking at galaxies in, in uh, mid-infrared to infrared wavelengths, which is around um, the mid-infrared is around 1 to 10 or so uh, microns and up to the far infrared kind of when i say infrared usually i'm talking about the range of like one to a thousand or so micron would be um your infrared or kind of approaching approaching your far infrared and uh to study the agn and star formation connection this is pretty much the most optimal uh optimal wavelength range to do it at because you can detect AGN um, unbiased from their obscuration level. So, and what I mean by that is that you can um, is that you can still um, the so the uh, the most Compton thick AGN as we refer to it, and uh, by by that I mean um, AGN that are very very dusty and have a very thick dusty torus surrounding them. Uh, so for those sources, sometimes even very deep X-ray surveys um, cannot detect those because the X-ray emission pretty much gets absorbed by the dust. So you have, you know, you have your hot corona of X-ray emission um, kind of surrounding the central black hole and then the torus around it. When the torus becomes thick enough, um, those X-rays get lost and they get trapped in, in that torus. And for that reason, X-rays are, are great at detecting a lot of AGN, um, but you know if in in the astronomy and X-ray AGN community, that is pretty much the biggest limitation right now. Uh, bef until we build um, better X-ray instruments, which some are are coming online soon. But I'm not an X-ray astronomer, so I'm also not a not an X-ray expert. But um, that's for that reason, uh, studying this dusty wavelength re regime is kind of optimal because you can still detect um, a range of a range of dusty dustiness levels. And um, the other thing is that when you want to study the black hole accretion, the most black hole accretion uh, is happening at, in these very dusty, dust obscured um, sources because that you know that's that's where you're getting the the most of your black hole accretion. So that's why that that regime is pretty much the most important for uh, on the AGN side. On the star formation side, you can get a lot of information um, about the amount of star formation occurring in a galaxy from the infrared wavelengths because what you're picking up on in the mid-infrared, you're picking up on these, what we refer to as uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon molecules, which are uh, produced in the outskirts, interstellar media of galaxies um, where stars are forming. So those are kind of, you're kind of getting those at mid-infrared wavelengths around um, eight to 10 microns. Um, so the, there are some of your star formation signatures uh, there. And then in the further infrared, it ranges around eight to a thousand micron. What's happening there is 
um, all the bright star formation happening in these galaxies that's emitting at um, UV wavelengths, so very, uh, very energetic from these massive stars. Um, it's absorbed by the dust and reprocessed into the infrared. So, so you're kind of seeing. Uh, so when you're when you're looking at how at how much a galaxy is emitting from um, you know from its dust, you're you're getting you're getting an idea not only of a little bit of the dust content, but you're, what you're seeing is starlight from new stars that formed that were absorbed by dust and then you know reprocessed. Um, it's reprocessed emission. So that's kind of the physics of what's going on um, in in that regime. And that's that's really fascinating to hear you explain that because as as any astronomer knows, and to all you non-astronomers who want to look like an astronomer, mm -hmm. uh, you should know this. If you ever go to an astronomy talk, you can always ask one of these two questions and you will sound smart. The first mm -hmm. question is, what is the effect of dust? And the second question is, what is the effect of evolution? And if you ask either of those questions about any realistic astronomical object, mm -hmm. you will be told that is a good question and you will get an informative <laughs> answer. And what you've just told us are three enormous effects of dust. The first part is realistic dust grains in the universe have a finite size to them and they're gonna have whatever density they have. But whatever the size of your dust grain is, in general, it's going to be very good at absorbing wavelengths of light that are smaller than the dust grain, and it's going mm -hmm. to be lousy at absorbing light that is larger than the size of the dust grains. So when you say, oh yeah, if you get too dusty, you won't be able to see the x-rays, that's because x-ray radiation is like super short radiation, and when you run into this dust, you know, the dust just absorbs it, so you can't see it because you make it too dim. It's too dim in the x-rays with all the dust yes. you have. But mm -hmm. all that energy has to go somewhere, so it heats those dust grains up, and those dust grains re-radiate, and some of that radiation comes exactly where you said in this mid-infrared or far-infrared. And so if you look at what's the dust doing, you can sort of pull out this dust emission and say, oh, that must be from absorbed x-rays from these AGNs. And you can say that is this and not some other thing by looking at that. But you can also say, oh, did I form new stars? And that has its own unique signature that shows up in the dust. And also, right. when you look in the infrared, because you're looking at these longer wavelengths that typically this dust is too small to absorb it, you can see through the galaxy directly to the central AGN. So the mm -hmm. dust, which normally is known for obscuring, when you go to the right wavelengths, to these longer wavelengths, it sounds like you're actually able to get much more information out of the galaxy because the dust is present by looking at it in the proper way. Right, right. Well, that's good. That's good. I like I like knowing that. Um, so now if I take that information and I go to put that together, I can say, well, hang on. Isn't there this problem that all the information you gave to me just now is about active galactic nuclei or galaxies that are relatively nearby? 
in the universe and what do I do when I want to go to galaxies that are very far away because if they're very far away in the expanding universe that means their light is going to be redshifted before it arrives at our eyes. So something that was happening at eight microns that's at a redshift of six is going to be happening out at 50 to 60 microns now. Yes. How will I be able to see that? Will I still be able to see that? And if I can make that observation, what can I learn about the galaxies from back then versus the galaxies today? Yeah, so exactly. So redshift is, um, it, it, it becomes a problem for the limiting luminosity or the, the limiting, um, you know, and luminosity I mean, in this context, not as um, an apparent quantity, um, apparent, an apparent descriptor, but uh, an intrinsic property. So once you get to higher and higher redshifts, um, for the infrared, we are our current technology, um, because of the shape of the emission of these galaxies and everything, and our current instruments, we cannot really see or we can't get much information for these dusty galaxies beyond a redshift about uh, two, two and a half, um, which corresponds to, um, I believe, what is it? How many years after the Big Bang? Um, we can say that's about three, two to three billion of... years after the Big Bang. Right, we, don't, right. we don't have to be too exact, but <laughs> yeah. in general, you Trying go to, to higher redshifts and things are younger and earlier and farther away right. today. Right. So what that means observationally, so from an observational perspective, um, we can get we can get information even even though um, whatever filter that we're looking at it, it, it becomes redshifted. So it is true that at higher redshifts, you know, when, once we feed this data into into the codes that we use based on models that we try to pull out the, this physical information from from these models like star formation rate and stuff like that, stellar mass. Um, we still do have constraints in um, up to about redshift two and a half for these galaxies, but um, that can help us get still get this information from them. But what it does, what the distance and those galaxies being so far away, what it does is that it limits the luminosity range that we can get, um, meaning that at that uh, for those distant sources, we're p only picking up the tip of the iceberg, you know, so we are biased to some of the brighter sources. So as you get further and further out, um, your limiting luminosity gets higher and higher. And so we you know, when, when astronomers write papers and do all this analysis, we, we have to factor that incompleteness in uh, to the way that we analyze our, analyze our data. Um, but so that that would be um, the biggest limitation of, you know, trying to st trying to study this evolution, which is something that I'm dealing with in my research now, working on understanding how to incorporate all of these corrections um, to the data based on this um, kind of systematic that that totally makes sense of how as you get further and further out uh you're only picking up the brightest sources um meaning that there are probably uh, a full range at that redshift you know there, there there is a full range but we're just not sensitive enough to those um fainter galaxies that are further away 
Yeah, and we have a very fancy word in astronomy for talking about something that is really basic. We call it Malmquist bias, and it basically says like, hey, when you can only see things that are above a certain apparent brightness, that mm -hmm. means that as you go farther and farther away, right, when you're close mm -hmm. by, you'll be it's able like, to wow, see bright. <laughs> you'll be able to see bright and faint things close by, but as you go mm -hmm. farther away, you're only going to see the intrinsically bright things because yes. they're farther away and things yes. look different dimmer when they're farther away, as you know, you could tell sort of anyone who's ever, you know, been on Earth with working eyes for more than a few minutes is like, <laughs> yes. oh, right, like I see that, I see that light over there. And I don't know if it's a very bright light that's very far away or a faint light that's close. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's just kind of how that works. But we exactly. look now with the instruments that we have, there's a very good possibility that we have really superior instruments operational in some really exciting places in the next few years. It's still slated for next year for 2021, although it's later in the fingers. year than we like, <laughs> that the James Webb Space Telescope is going to launch. And that will be a spectacular near and mid infrared observatory that takes us out to about 30 microns in the infrared, um, which should help view these sources, especially once they've been located um, spectacularly. On yes. the X-ray front, the European Space Agency has the Athena mission coming up, and one of the proposed next-generation NASA missions is Lynx, which would be an incredible upgrade over our current Chandra X-ray telescope and even ESA's proposed Athena. And in the far infrared, we have a proposed mission called the Origins Space Telescope, which mm -hmm. would um, really revolutionize far infrared astronomy uh, in a way that no observatory has. It would represent, I think, somewhere between a factor of 100 and 1,000 improvement over what NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope or ESA's Herschel Space Telescope was a decade ago. Yes, exactly. And um, yeah, so there is there's definitely a few different kinds of um, advantages for this, for these new telescopes that are that are going to be launched or coming online in the next, hopefully under five ish years, um, a few of them being the different um, kind of like you mentioned about um, James Webb Space Telescope, a few of them being that they are more, they're sampling um, more discrete bands of the mid infrared, which would allow us to have, you know, just have more data points for these sources um, within, even within the redshifts that we already um, have, that we already have access to. So this is the whole um, conundrum of, uh, or the, the mystery open question, what everyone's so excited to, um, to discover is what does the dusty galaxy population look like beyond this redshift earlier in the universe? Because our current, um, technology, we really kind of, um, of course we're limited to some red, some bias, um, even at redshift two where, where star formation and black hole accretion are, are so active. Um, but so, so there's the fact that even within this redshift range that we have already studied, we are going to get more detailed information about these sources, uh, deeper information, be able to, um, you know, detect, um, understand how their AGN activity and their star formation activity is coinciding um, 
better. And then beyond that, we um, will be able to fill in some of the gaps of, of what the dusty galaxy population looks like beyond a redshift too. And another one of the instruments that I want to mention that um, will be great for this um, is the Large Millimeter Telescope, which is co-owned by UMass, my institution, and um, the government of Mexico. Uh, so it's located down in Mexico, and it is a 1.1 millimeter uh, dish. That's the that's the wavelength band that it observes at, but it is a single dish, 50 meters uh, in diameter. And that's really exciting, right? Because you're talking about yes. an observation at sort of the end of the far infrared over right. there. When you say 1.1 millimeters, that's like, that's 1,100 microns. That's about that's about 10,000 times the wavelength that a visible that visible light is. This is this is much longer wavelength. So you want to build an enormous dish to collect it because you have to have a significant number of wavelengths of light go across it and if your wavelengths of light are longer, then you have to build your dish larger so a 50 meter telescope is pretty big. It's pretty yes. big. It's bigger than any optical telescope that we are in the process, even in the process of building, um, which is which is incredible. And you you've sort of brought up what I call a uh, a die happy question, which is <laughs> if if I'm in my field right and I spend my lifetime working towards answering this one question if I could find the answer, I would die happy, right? In, mm -hmm. in yeah. cosmology, it might be like, what is dark matter or dark energy? Or yes. what is inflation and how was the universe born? And in mm -hmm. your field, I think, you know, you talked earlier, you talked at the very beginning of this conversation about how at the highest redshifts, we see these quasars because there's no dust in them and they just brightly emit, you know, what they emit and we can see them even in the optical. So we've discovered tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of these quasars just with the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. But then you also say, okay, but there's got to be dusty galaxies out there that are at these high red ships that are super distant that we're just not seeing. Right. Is that a a die happy thing for you where if you say you know what we're going to spend years and maybe even decades sort of researching what is going on with these early galaxies what is going mm -hmm. on with these early dusty galaxies and how does an early dusty galaxy what makes it active and what what is its connection to star formation and how does it turn on and off and how does this evolve with time? How do galaxies evolve and AGNs evolve along with them as the universe goes from being 100 million years old to 500 million years old to a billion to 2 billion to 5 billion to 10 billion to today? Um, is, that, is that something that within our lifetimes we might be able to look forward to science actually finding an answer to? Um, yes, I definitely think uh, we are, we're well on our way, at least within the next five or 10 years to answering that. And I'll tell you a little bit more big picture wise, why that's such um, an important question. So it has to do with um, the reason that, uh, you know, dusty galaxies in particular, um, are, are such a such a mystery. Well, not only because we just don't have the technology to study them before, uh, beyond Redshift 2. So, of course, you know, you always want what you can't have, right? Um, so, <laughs> so there's that. Um, but part part of the big picture mystery of it is um, 
is just the evolution of uh, dust in the universe in general. So the because dust um, because dust has to had to have been created from multiple kind of cycles of of stars producing dust and going off in supernovae and 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 dying out and and that's how that's how we believe um, the dust to be created. So when you think back to the early universe, when you really only started out with hydrogen um, and helium before these uh, before these much heavier elements were made, this is kind of a really big open spotlight question on um, that astronomers have, and it all is it all comes full circle and re and relates to how uh, how the evolution of dusty galaxies at really early um, epochs in the universe persisted is. Where did the dust come from? You know how, like, how did how did everything start? You start off with these theorized um, population three stars, um, right? The the first be, stars in the universe made from right. hydrogen and helium alone. Exactly, exactly. So these are kind of the theorized beginning because essentially, you know, you had to get to a place where you started with hardly any, with, you know, you started with these elements and at some point heavier elements because, so d I'll just say again, if anyone that doesn't know, dust uh, or what we refer to as metals in astronomy is just any element that is heavier than hydrogen and helium, which isn't that hard. I mean, isn't that hard to locate one on the periodic table of the elements, but in the universe, um, there aren't that many uh, percentage yeah, wise. Only uh, only one to 2% of the entire universe today after almost 14 billion years is a metal according to astronomers. Um, by mm -hmm. mass, 98% of the universe is hydrogen and helium. Right, so if you piece it together like a story, you know, you have your universe starting um, with these light elements of hydrogen and helium. And then at some point, um, you know, at some point stars form and everything in this very, um, low metal environments, which is already a little bit of a, <laughs> of a mystery to start with these population three stars that we talk about. Um, there's no observational evidence of them. They, they're entirely theoretical, um, predictions of, of, of how the first star is possibly formed, but it's like, how do you get from this, um, from this early universe that hardly had any metals um, to these dusty galaxies, and how did this evolution of these uh, of these dusty galaxies happen? And so that's uh, so we have kind of an understanding of another of a separate population of galaxies that we can detect at higher redshifts beyond between redshift two and six. Uh, we do have an understanding of the, some of those galaxies as probed from optical wavelengths, but the dusty galaxies, we we kind of don't have those blanks filled in. And if we want to talk about, you know, piecing together the puzzle of of the production of the heavy, heavy elements in the universe and how, how things kind of progressed, that's a really big open question. How did how did we get these extremely dusty galaxies? It's almost like right now we have this this extreme, you know, we have one data point filled in that um, as far as the eye can see, as far as the quote unquote telescope eyes can see, it's kind of just like, oh wow, this whole period, this episode of 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 uh, cosmic time has these really dusty, dusty galaxies. But it's like, how did they, how did they get there? Um, so that's really, I would say, there's a lot of there's a lot of infrared uh, extragalactic astronomers that that's definitely their die happy question. <laughs> 
No, and this is this is really fascinating because these are some questions that, uh, at the very least, James Webb Space Telescope has the potential to start yes. shedding answers on this. You know, I think one of the things you've expressed frustrations about uh, with me in the past, not that you're frustrated at me, but that you're frustrated <laughs> with the astronomy community, is that... Um, there is so much that we think should happen, but that we don't actually know yeah. if it happens, how it happens. Um, and you've expressed to me that you get frustrated when astronomers aren't really willing to admit how much there is that we don't actually know about these big right. questions that we're, we're trying to answer, that we, we have a good story of how we think it ought to work and how these pieces fit together, but that's not the same as having the data to back up, like, hey, here's what we know and how we know it. Can you, can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. Well, um, you know, it kind of go, all goes back or, or starts to the fact that, um, at least from what we've pieced together, you know, the universe is only about four or five percent of baryonic matter, which means um, any kind of matter that is uh, not just is, is uh, perceivable to us, I guess I'll say, um, that's part of the uh, electromagnetic spectrum. So, of course, there's uh, sometimes if you're not an astronomer, perceivable might just you might just think, oh, like light. I look out in the sky and I see uh, I see a galaxy that's or a star that's made of light. Um, so that's your optical light. But so when I say perceivable, I am talking about the entire electromagnetic spectrum. So only about five percent of the universe is made up of everything that we've been studying and the rest is dark matter and dark energy and i you know i've sometimes people say um that you know the the dark matter and you know the the mysteries of dark matter and dark energy is kind of almost the biggest blunder of of astrophysics uh that we don't know i mean there are some theories um but you know we don't know what 95 percent of the universe is is made up of um and it's a whole big question mark, really. And of course, there's, you know, there's a lot of research not to say that we don't have our theories and that we don't have, um, you know, some supporting evidence of dark matter halos and, you know, other dark matter interactions. But there really is um, a lot to be discovered, discovered about it. And I think I think with better instruments, we can definitely fill in some of the blanks on uh, the earlier universe and stuff, um, at a certain point, it gets a little, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you studied cosmology, right? At a certain point, once you talk about inflation and the Big Bang, um, all of that stuff really gets a little head scratchy. And uh, that's where in the early universe, you have this mix of, you know, your traditional physics is kind of thrown out the window, everything's too hot and dense. And and you have these this quantum world and uh, things get a little weird. And so there's that, which is still obviously being worked on more in a more in a theoretical way, pieced together also by observations. But um, so there's that. There's the higher redshift universe that hopefully can be filled in by um, some more some more advanced telescopes uh, down to better sensitivity. But in general, there's there's also the fact that we only quote unquote, no, 5% of what's out there. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. You know, we have, uh, 
we have on the one hand, uh, you know, our real secure knowledge and, and our secure knowledge is stuff that comes from where we have direct evidence where we said, OK, mm -hmm. like I want to measure a proton and I can perform all these experiments on a proton where I can, you know, tell you these various properties of it, uh, the various quantum properties, the various intrinsic properties, the various properties that that change with time versus what remains constant about it, right? And I can I can perform a whole bunch of experiments directly on the proton and measure it. And you can say like, yeah, that's part of the 5% that we understand really, really well. And then if mm -hmm. I start talking about dark matter, um, I can't do that, right? I can talk yeah. about like, okay, <laughs> here's how our universe behaves theoretically with dark matter, without dark matter. Here are some observational tests I can do and they're indirect to sort of see if dark matter, if the picture with dark matter or the picture without dark matter is better supported. Um, but that's mm -hmm. not the same, right? Having indirect evidence for something is not the same as having direct evidence for it. It's sort of like, okay, like I, I touched its tail and I touched its ears and I touched its nose and I touched its hooves or its feet. And I think this is an elephant based on all the things I touched yeah. with my eyes mm -hmm. closed. But I didn't get a full view of it, and I only I, I didn't get to smell it. I didn't get to see it. I only got to touch it, and I it's consistent with being an elephant. But that doesn't mean it's an elephant. Like maybe I maybe you went and cloned and resurrected and shaved a woolly mammoth, and that's mm -hmm. what I touched instead. And maybe I'm fooling myself. And there are some things where, you know, you can go even further and say, well, what about ideas like supersymmetry or string theory or something like that? And there I don't even have indirect evidence. There I only have, you know, I only have, hmm, like this is what we think should happen and here are some consequences and I can't even go and observe them. So I think that there is like... There is this ignorance that we have that we are existentially uncomfortable with and we just admit mm -hmm. to ourselves, you know, we're doing the best we can with the evidence we have and I can come up with indirect tests of inflation and, and I can name four of them so I'm pretty confident that like, okay, inflation is better than the old Big Bang without inflation but that also doesn't mean that my current models of inflation are the final answer. And the dark matter, when I throw that into my universe, I get results that, you know, on a wide variety of observational fronts, they seem to agree with dark matter and cold dark matter at that as opposed to no dark matter but that doesn't mean it's the final answer rather than the best answer we have so far right exactly and um you know i think that a lot of the mystery that maybe hopefully will be uncovered soon is kind of a little bit more in the quantum world and in in quantum physics um and you know that's why i get so I just I get so intrigued when you know you hear people talking about pseudoscience or um, or just in general, not even with astronomers or um, you know people saying like oh that's not scientifically supported. And so me from from my perspective, being an astronomer, knowing hmm we have no idea <laughs> kind of what ninety five percent of the universe is made of, um, and you know knowing a, a little bit about quantum physics, uh, who are we to say what is 
quote unquote, real science, you know, that's kind of my uh, opinion on the, on the matter a, a little bit. So sometimes I'm a little um, intrigued when, I mean, and obviously astronomers are, for the most part, a pretty open-minded bunch, very curious bunch. Um, but I think that, you know, when it comes to bringing up certain things that some people might say like, oh, that doesn't make sense or that's not possible, you know, from, if anyone, from our perspective of understanding uh, that weird things go on in the quantum physics world and uh, understanding how much we don't know and how much we can't explain and how much, you know, and that, who's to say that there isn't another realm of possibilities out there? You know, that's kind of when I have these random discussions with friends at parties and, and stuff like that, and they ask me my opinions and they pick my brain on things, that's kind of what I like to tell them. I because of what I do, I have an incredibly open mind and I don't, I don't rule anything out. Um, as far as, you know, when it well, depends on what you're talking about, but, um, yeah, so that, that's, that's what I like to think about. <laughs> no. And I think that's kind of interesting because, you know, in theoretical physics, we, we certainly don't mind like, oh, like, well, something's happening and we can't explain it. So we'll just, you know, we'll add an extra dimension or six and see if we can explain it now or, right. hmm, well, this isn't happening the way we think it should. So what if we invent an entirely new space-time metric that, uh, you know, okay, like everything interacts with, uh, everything that we know interacts with the general relativity metric that we have, but what if there's a different metric that's also on top of it and whatever dark matter right. is, is something acting on that metric instead? And, you know, right. these sound like, you know, geez, Ethan, these are pretty ad hoc explanations, aren't they? <laughs> and the answer is, well, well, yeah. Some might but, think you that, know, I don't. To, to someone, <laughs> who to yeah. someone who didn't know anything that we know today who lived a hundred years ago the idea of an expanding universe the idea of dark matter dark energy a big bang cosmic inflation all of these things would have seemed just like absolute fantastical you know maybe even you know nonsense blatherings and yet mm -hmm. here we are and today that's mainstream exactly. science um i right and so i'm oh, sorry oh i was gonna say i'm i'm a little bit afraid to ask but i'm also <laughs> curious uh do you have any personal um non-mainstream beliefs or things that you're sure intrigued do. about that you'd be willing to share with us? Yeah, so, right, so kind of this, yeah, related to what I was gonna say, you know, we have, you know, we have the law of gravity, right, which we have observed to be true and we've found support in, in other ways, but, you know, who who's to say that there might not be some other um, kind of universal laws that are governing things that are maybe beyond our perception, beyond our evolution. And kind of, so I am kind of rather involved in, in the spiritual community. And in that, by that, I mean, you know, thinking about different levels of consciousness. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of quantum physics stuff that kind of, that kind of goes into that too. Um, but essentially kind of, from what I've heard, and this resonates with me a little bit, it's, I think it, it's possible that maybe some of our, 
a lot of the dark matter that we can't observe is kind of locked in different overlapping dimensions of um, different, and by dimensions, I kind of mean different states of consciousness and different um, kind of states of being. And so we're, we're here on earth and in the third, third dimensional density, we can perceive we're kind of overlapping a little bit into the fourth, you know, space time. Um, but, you know, who's to say that there aren't kind of, and, and I'll say, I'll say, I'll be the first to say it, it's, you can't describe what I'm talking about without sounding incredibly esoteric. Um, but if you'll kind of roll with it for a second, um, I kind of believe that we kind of, ha we have these different dimensions that are, that are stacked on each other. And the dimension that we're in right now, we can only perceive of that just because of, you know, because of our consciousness and because of the evolutionary state that we're at as a humanity, we can only perceive of so much because of, of the dimension that, that we're living in. But it's possible, um, maybe either in our lifetimes or that other um, aliens have, you know, progressed their civilization beyond and have expanded their knowledge and and have elevated in their levels of consciousness to be able to perceive of higher dimensions. And um, in that, once you kind of ascend into these higher dimensions, you have access to more information and you can perceive of more. And I think it's possible that right now we can only perceive of a certain percent of of the universe and um i can't really answer in what way would be be able to perceive of the of the higher dimensions that's where it gets a little weird um but yeah but you know if you were to kind of just let your imagination um wander that is one thing that i've kind of thought about could be possible explanation for where the where the rest of this matter is locked up in it sounds like you're uh it sounds like your vision of what reality could be beyond what we perceive sort of like it's sort of like telling us like what if we live in a version of like a non-quantum flatland but reality is you know not only quantum in the way we understand it but but has either these hidden variables or additional degrees of freedom beyond what we can right. currently perceive and also additional dimensions where if we could access them and maybe that is something that's physically possible um maybe we could interact with understand or even control yes. them and manipulate them the way we do with normal matter today Exactly. And to bring it down to, um, you know, a, to, to put it in terms that even that is not as esoteric as ascending into these different states of consciousness, um, you know, it kind of it does all boil down to energy. Um, you know, we are energy and as astronomers and scientists um, should be the first to understand that, you know, everything in the universe uh, has some kind of energy associated with it. And so each person has an energy. We, we emanate this, this energy. And that's why when you're in a room and even if you're not looking, if you can't hear someone, if someone walks into the room, you can feel their presence, right? You can feel things, you can feel attention in the room with someone. And we have these extra sensory abilities beyond our five, beyond our uh, known five senses to sense this energy. Right. And so if you kind of work with that, um, you know, so we're energy, everything is kind of 
oscillating. There is there's a there's a frequency, there's a vibration to everything. And you can extend that to say that not only things uh, have energy, but thoughts have energy. And so this kind of gets into another law that I believe to kind of be universal, which is the law of attraction, um, meaning that whatever, you know, whatever your thoughts can manipulate the world around you, uh, because whatever frequency thoughts you're kind of uh, able to hold in your mind, you will attract things and thoughts and experiences that are vibrating at that same frequency, and then you can attract them into your life. And so that's a bit of a scientific way of, um, you know, explaining the law of attraction and um, also what people refer to as manifestation. Sometimes people refer to it as the power of positive thinking. Um, but so these are some of the things that, you know, I, I truly believe in. And I'm also an astronomer and hopefully, you know, no one just marks me as crazy and kicks me out of grad school. Um, but, you know, some of the things like this, I, I don't think are that, um, are too much of a stretch beyond the imagination. I mean, for some people, uh, they are, but yeah, you kind of just think of, um, think of things as, as energy and, and thoughts hold energy. Um, and just from that alone, from what I've come to understand and experience, um, is a whole a, a different law that the universe abides by, which is this law of attraction, where you know things that vibrate at a certain frequency kind of attract one another. And so there's a law of gravity that never shuts off. There's a law of attraction, and who knows, there might be other ways that things operate and are governed um, that are kind of existing up in higher dimensions. Um, that maybe, who knows, maybe that's where our dark matter is. And I don't know what that would look like. And I don't think the other thing that I want to say is that, um, you know, of course, it's really hard to perceive of this. And of course, it's esoteric because of the dimension that we are in, and we are in the third and fourth dimension. And by nature, it's going to be difficult for us to perceive to even conceive of things higher than that. That is, you know, that's kind of just by design. Um, that's, that's at least what I think. So that's why it's so hard to kind of wrap your head around to a certain extent or to wrap your head around, uh, things operating in a different way. Um, you can't conceive of it because, you know, we can only conceive of things that we've experienced, right? Yeah, I do. I, I honestly, like, I, I'm intrigued by what you're saying and I mm. wish I was better <laughs> at one very particular part of it, which is, uh, Oh man, when I am alone in a room and someone else enters the room, I wish I was better at knowing when that happens and when mm -hmm. someone is doing that because I am like a reverse ninja. I am so easy <laughs> to sneak up on and surprise like that. And if I could uh, if I could somehow harness that ability to be better about it, it would be very useful to my life, and it would have been very useful to my life at many different junctures. Um, <laughs> but I do want to thank you for sharing that with us. You know, we get a lot of people, I think, in the astronomy community who are, or in the science community in general, who are very dismissive of wild yeah. ideas that, exactly. um, you know, I... 
I, I won't say that I necessarily believe everything that I hear, yeah. but I do try and be open-minded to, um, you know, right up until the point where you run into evidence contradicting it, can you at least be open-minded enough to consider that this thing that you may not, um, that you may not necessarily believe in, um, but will you be open-minded enough to consider that if this is true, if this were true, um, is there something that we could do to investigate it? And I think that that's a very, I think that's a fascinating thing to be willing to consider. Um, Alyssa, right, and you can almost, oh, go ahead. oh sorry, I just want to say one more, one more thing quickly about, about, um, about, about this is that you could almost make it analogous to um, the 5% of the universe that we can perceive of and um, things beyond our five senses that we can perceive of, right? So there's 5% of the universe that we can perceive of that's within our electromagnetic spectrum that we are able to study um, that you can maybe refer to as our senses, right? And then, but there's a whole other chunk of it that we think exists, but we can't perceive of it but we know that there's something there, right? And so it's kind of like analogous to our, our five senses, right? They're like, who's to say that there isn't more beyond our five senses? Maybe we don't understand um, what that would look like or how to interpret that, right? But um, yeah, you can, kind of, you can kind of make that analogy. No, and I, I agree with that. You know, I think if you had talked to me, you know, when I was a teenager, I would have told you like, yeah, there are only the five senses because that's all we have evidence for. And then I start thinking like, is that even true? Like, which of the five mm -hmm. senses tells me when I'm hungry? Oh, no, I have another sense that tells me when I'm hungry. Right. Oh, uh, what do I feel when I, uh, when I sort of... Uh, can detect that someone is close actually humans have a bit of electroreception it's not yeah. as good as sharks mm -hmm. is but we have that as well i think the last exactly. i read i heard there were something like 16 different senses that our bodies have um which i could not list all of them for hmm. you but yeah. i absolutely believe it and i don't doubt that there might be 17 or more out there if there are 16. definitely yeah gotta open our minds all right. Well, Alyssa, I want to thank you for a fascinating set of discussions. And yeah. uh, I want to thank everyone out there for tuning in. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with before we close this program out? Ooh. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I want to say, I want to urge everyone, and I have been doing this now to all my friends and family, um, especially in this time of... Uh, pandemic and a lot of self-reflection to kind of just open your mind and, and question things. And that's what I'm trying to kind of probe around and have interesting discussions with people and see, you know, especially astronomers and scientists, I'm trying to understand what are the bounds of people's knowledge and why do they have such limitations? And this applies to everything, you know, applies to our understanding of the universe and our understanding of what maybe I've babbled about that is beyond our five senses, you know, kind of just keep your mind open and keep in mind that astronomers who study the entire universe only know the details more or less of 5% of it. So there's really a lot left to be discovered. And because of that, it kind of, you know, helps me really have, have an open mind and consider a lot of different possibilities, which also just makes life more fun. <laughs> so that's what I would urge people to do to kind of probe, think, explore. You hear that, everyone? Keep your <laughs> minds open. Keep your yeah. minds open because you never know which possibility, no matter how unlikely it sounds to you, will actually turn out to be the truth. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you all for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. And I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Thomas Moore, Chad Marler, Samir Kumar, Matt Conroe, Tim Graham, Frank, John Methot, Aaron Weiss, Pete Smoyer, Chris Jakutas, Jeffrey David Maricini, Stefan Berniger, Paulina Barron, Pierre Franson, Jean Van Balaguyan, Charles Buchanan, Dominic Turpin, Hellbender, Punitive Expedition, Pavel Zuzelski, Rob Hansen, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Vlad Pashkovsky, Sean Foley, Sergei Gordienko, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Jens Kroger, Joseph Dvorak, Laird W.H., Mike, Ahmed Lee Kamsi, Alex Fedotov, Jerry Wilterdingsch, Flo, John Cruzura, Jose Enrique, Rafael Wojcik, Patrick Dennis, Denier, Danny, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Adam Robinson, Chuck Dannon, Paul Lester, Lalina Menenti, Gabriel Nader, Tim Hines, Stefan Petrangelo, Sam Serzakian, Jeff Renike, Tina Tallon, Rushin Shah, Inga Strumke, Alfredo Vivanco, Lockwood Carlson, Alan Parikh, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Dick Pills, Adrian Griffiths, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, Arnufal Zepeda, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, James Fitzwater, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Swartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, James Page, Steve Schaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Rich Weigel, Bob Simone, James James Nance, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, David Taschioni, Radek Nesbida, Heather, Herbert Coe, Nathan Hanna, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Benhead, and Tomas Walgren. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. 